Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Colonel John Anthony Cash, who served in the Army as a rifle company commander in Vietnam. In this final part of his interview, Cash tells more incredible stories, reflects on the war as a whole, and talks about coming home. See, the thing that we had going for us is that we could get a hold of the enemy and hang on to him and maintain contact. We had all these uh, endless firepower resources, and if they were dumb enough to stand and fight with us, that was it. And if they could get away from us and decentralize and break down so they didn't present a lucrative target, then we would have to go search for them again. And uh, that's what I think, in retrospect, was the advantage of uh, of just keeping pouring it on and pouring it on. We have been told, for example, that the Idrang was really by design as far as the enemy was concerned because they wanted to give the death knell to the air mobile concept. That's what all the historians are saying after the fact. And it's conceivable that White Wing was more the same. You see, that we're going to do a job on what's left of the first care. Maybe they believe their own propaganda. Maybe there are actually soldiers in their army that actually believe that they dealt such a death blow to us. Well, let's talk about advantages. I think they were very well led. And I've always felt after all the years I spent in the army that there are three components to effective use of military force. Leadership training, and the things you use, men and material. I think you can have inferior equipment and even not the greatest training. Good leadership will always make a difference. We had good leadership too, but the NVA, their leadership was even more important because they were highly motivated. As recent events have shown, uh, the communist system threw in the towel and said, we outspent them and outlasted or whatever. One thing I'll give them, and that's that zeal, that zeal that the leadership had and belief in something bigger than themselves. And I'll give the NVA that. What else could have allowed them to put up all the hardship and going down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, one guy, guy carrying one mortar around, another guy carrying half of this, and that's on bicycles and things. And they outlasted. I think that's why they won the war at the strategic level, although they didn't win it at the tactical level. I'll give you an example of the kind of, uh, of, uh, determination they have. I remember we, we captured a wounded uh, North Vietnamese soldier 
And it was when Specialist Weiss was killed. And it was raining, and the guy had been seriously wounded. He was laying near, uh, oh, I'd say maybe about from here to where your kitchen door is. And uh, we figured because he was so badly wounded that uh, we didn't have to worry about the guy. Many of the guys were tired. We hadn't had any sleep. And I had one guy sitting under the poncho, and every now and then he'd look around, and he was monitoring the radio. And I remember one of my radio operators said, look at that guy. He looked over there, and you ever see a praying mantis, how slowly move? We watched this NVA, and he was moving ever so slowly trying to get to the guy's rifle. And we said, well, what's he going to do if he gets a rifle? Where's he going to go? He's surrounded by Americans. And uh, I went and told the radio operator, because we told guys to stay alert. And I said, you want to lose your rifle and your life, that guy over there is going to get it. And he got mad and went over and kicked the guy, and I think the guy died of internal breathing because the next morning he was he was dead. But I had to ask myself, I said, you know, there's a certain level where you say, I've done my best as a soldier. What do I hope to gain by continuing this? And then I'd heard other stories from uh, other people, you know, and they were very, very shrewd. I remember when they finally hit on K with mortars one night. We were on the berm line, they used to call it. We, our particular battalion had the responsibility of guarding them. And they picked a night when there was no moon. And they had, we could see the flashes and mortars, maybe nine or 10 rounds in the air before the first one hit the ground. They created a diversion by attacking one side of this perimeter. And then they sent an overwhelming force up on Han Khan Mountain, which is a little hill about five, 800 meters high. And they killed guys in the beds, laying there, sleep, playing with transcarados and everything. It was a major embarrassment and were away before we could do anything. I can remember watching a gunship hovering about 200 yards away, firing a full salvo, 48 rockets, 24 on each side, into their storage tank where they kept all the fuel and everything. It's a big ball of flame. And uh, they were just good. I remember we had a demonstration once of how they would get through a, uh, we had, on the Berlin, for example, we had triple concertina, double apron barbed wire fence, minefields, and everything. And they had a captured BC demonstrate to us how they could get through all that with a lot of guts and patience. And then they capitalized on the way Americans do things. We are kind of lazy and very extravagant. We used to set up ambushes where we would leave a case of C rations or half a case of ammunition in the middle of an LZ. And then the rest of the company would leave, and I would stay behind with one platoon. We'd surround the LZ, and they know that when they see helicopters, they know the dumb Americans probably left some stuff there. And we could never entice them to come in and take what we had and where we would get them because they were so good at figuring out how Americans were. So I think they had extremely good leadership. And at the strategic level, I just don't think we were any match to them. Just the night before Saigon was overrun, we had people in Hanoi that were part of that commission that was supposed to see about uh, the way the war was going to be concluded and whatnot. And an American officer turned to his NBA counterpart and said, well, looks like you guys are going to win the war, but let me tell you one damn thing. You never defeated an American battalion on the field of battle, which they didn't. And the North Vietnamese is supposed to reply, that's right, we didn't. But that was not what the war was about, and that's where you Americans made a mistake. You didn't understand what the war was about. The uh, They were just good. They used minimum means for maximum gain. And we had all that firepower. And I don't know what it's like to fight without air cover. 
you know, and they did and they prevailed. I mean, I've seen B-52 strikes. I've sat at the, oh, maybe five kilometers away and we watched an area about three football fields alone uh, erupt in smoke and flame, and dust and dirt. You see gazes of everything going in the air and then we flew right in to explore it. And our first reaction was, how in the hell could anybody live through that? Yet we took sniper fire. And we saw bodies sticking up out of the dirt, cows, half of a village blown away and whatnot. And you wonder, how how could anybody live through that and still prevail? And they did. You do need rules of engagement, I suppose, because you want to avoid friendly fire against your own forces, for one thing. When you got people going in all kinds of different directions, it was not a linear war like World War II in Korea. And yet it put us at a decided disadvantage because you had to identify the target. And it didn't take them long to figure out what our rules of engagement were. Hell, I mean, all they had to do was read the Stars and Stripes and read between the lines because things like that in an offhand manner were discussed in the uh, in news media. And uh, you had to make positive identification, and then you had to go through a chain of command where the word had to be given that yes, you can fire, or no, you can't fire. So forth on. These guys were so good. I remember on my second tour that they actually could imitate American voices. And uh, we used to use smoke grenades, for example, smoke grenades. And a smoke grenades come in different colors. And if you wanted to fire or do something or identify yourself on the ground so the helicopter gunships could know where and where not to shoot, the least had the same color smoke grenades. So we had to develop a procedure so that when the guy saw the smoke, he had to tell you what color it was. You couldn't say, I'm going to pop yellow smoke because that would, the VC would do the same thing as soon as they see yellow smoke. But they were very good. They learned a lesson. Well, they also did some dumb things. I can recall catching VC asleep in the middle of the jungle. And uh, sometimes they threw trash on the ground and gave themselves away. And then because of the food they ate and whatnot, you could smell. The smell carries a long way in the jungle. And uh, you could actually smell. I don't want to say that from a cultural, ethnic sense, but you just could because of the, the uh, sauce they used on their food. And, you know, they had hygienic problems as much as we did. And, of course, we were the same way. You try to tell them a bunch of GIs don't like cigarettes or don't talk. We used to tie a string to each other, you know, use that for sailors. It lasts for about an hour. Guys start talking about their girlfriends back home and everything. Yeah, we still managed to win wars. At the unit level, at the company and platoon level, I would say that they were just as good, if not better, because we were good, too. And Americans are naturally aggressive and whatnot, but we had so much more going for us that sometimes we did not put it to good advantage, like the artillery or like the helicopters and whatnot. And they prevailed. We used to booby trap them because the Vietnamese, I think, had the same attitude towards uh, their dead that we did, you know, to retrieve them. Now, uh, as far as ripping patches off and putting them on bodies, I had one sergeant, he used to carry extra patches. They were not cloth patches, they were this kind that have the stick-on thing, and he would put them on the VCs uh, right around his chest there. I had one guy execute a prisoner one time. That was, it happened before I could do anything. We were coming, it was on right way. We were coming across a rice paddy, I had two platoons abreast, and a VC was probably scared, jumped up out of a foxhole about 50 yards and started to run. And the reporter said, Donglai, they interpreted Donglai, Donglai, which means stop. The guy was just scared. He had an AK on his back, you know, and he's probably trying to reach for it at the same time. Two platoons opened up on the guy. 
By the time we got up to him, he uh, was laying there. He had nothing but bullet holes. He was standing, laying there, blinking. And the medic got down, and the interpreter got down with him. What unit are you in? They said, and the guy couldn't even talk. So the medic said, sir, this guy's dying. Yeah, half his genitalia had been shot off and whatnot. Before I could even say anything, I remember the Sergeant Bass was a particularly bloodthirsty guy. Walked over and got all the guys. His platoon was the nearest to the action. And got all the guys in this platoon who were new. And started saying, you guys think you're in combat? I'm going to show you what war is like. He took his M16, put it on full automatic, put it right here, and put a whole magazine in the guy's head. Before I could even say boo, he walked up to me and said, so you want me to finish him off? Before I could even answer, I was drinking out of a canteen. He went ahead and did it. And then the guy's head just exploded like a watermelon. And they wanted to take his poncho off his back and put it on the bike and all that stay there. I thought about that for years. I kept telling him, I said, well, the guy was going to die anyway. Guys are pissed off. We'd had a few casualties the day before and so forth and so on. But as far as that being a pattern and atrocities and torturing prisoners and things like that, I don't think that was a policy. I think individuals would sometimes get carried away because I think most guys are probably like me. You know, I can remember looking through my binoculars one time, doing white wing and seeing women and children and a battalion man in his little helicopter. What are you going to do? He said, that's where your fire's coming from. And I wasn't about to shoot any woman. The other girls out there look just like my little daughter. And I didn't do anything. We had two guys wounded from that fire, but I wasn't about to start shooting at any civilians. After every operation, or even during operations, we would see bodies of people killed, wounded. I remember one time we came across a woman who had a baby in her arms, and at the last minute, she must have put her hand over the baby's face. It was the only part on either of their bodies that wasn't burned. You know, and you see people laying out in the middle of the jungle with black pajamas on. You didn't know whether it was VC or not. It's a very bloody business. Yeah, I remember one time we found a, I think it was a second lieutenant at NVA's body. And I remember we looked through all his personal loans. The guy was a poet. He was a school teacher from somewhere near Hanoi. I remember the interpreters reading his poems to her. He no more wanted to be out there in the middle of the jungle than a man with a beautiful wife and two little daughters. You know, in their school uniforms or whatnot. I don't know. It's all history now. We we have these reunions with the first care of every year, and the, I don't go to them anymore because of that one experience. But the war stories get bigger and bigger. Bigger and bigger and bigger. A lot of times, because of the way the war was fought, we would be put into a helicopter and so sometimes we wouldn't even know where we were going until we were airborne. And then I would get a coded message in my helicopter, and I'd have to figure out how to tell all the other platoon leaders so we'd at least have a concept of what to do when we got on the ground. The frustration, in general terms, was not making contact. And it was a double-edged sword because some guys didn't want to make contact because when you make contact, naturally somebody might get killed or, or wounded. And uh, there was a general feeling that... Uh, Unless you made contact, and let's say you went weeks at a time without making any, always trying to make sure guys didn't get lax and let the guard down, and then trying to figure out what you could do to give them a means of saying that something's doing with me. We used to have mortar practice all the time because we were always in a problem with the mortars because we had such good artillery support. Each one of the rifle companies had a mortar platoon. And when I first took over, I started having... The entire platoon, each one guy carried one eighty-one millimeter round. That's what, 30, 40 rounds. And we tended to draw in the artillery instead because they were so much more proficient at it. 
until the point where I eventually retrained the rifle platoon, that retained the mortar platoon as a rifle platoon. I got permission to do that. It was more rifle foxhole strength. But uh, you always had to fight to keep guys at a high level of readiness. Because if you just go for days and days and days, you don't see anything. There's no indication of the enemy and so forth and so on. Uh, you get lax. And uh, that's what you had to avoid. The biggest fear all of us had was getting ambushed. I never got ambushed. I'm very proud of that. And that's because I didn't like to walk on trails. And I remember the battalion commander jumped on me one time. He said, what do you got against trails? I said, sir, each one of these guys got some lead time, what, like 18, 19 years? I said, I want to take them all back home. He said, yeah, all you ever do is fire out there. I said, sir, I'll clean out the, a the AP, the ammo point, if you let me. I said, because I think one artillery round as an equalizer is a lot more effective with this bursting radius than private so-and-so over there from uh, whatever, you know. And uh, there are some people that feel that you use Americans as, uh, as cannon fodder. Uh, there is a time and place in combat when it's unavoidable that you're going to have to lock horns with the enemy. But I figured if it's just us out there on the ground and we're trying to make contact, let him know what he's up against. And I had a lot of guys trying to get in my company as a result. You know. The fact of the matter is that if you do patrol, even though you don't make contact, you've accomplished a military means, a military objective, because you've kept the enemy from doing something else, because mostly they would try to avoid contact with us. Now, it's interesting you say you send them out by squad. I always felt more comfortable just to send the platoons out, because the platoon leader has got a radio. He's a trained officer in the use of artillery, can call in airstrikes and whatnot. And you weren't always sure that you could trust a sergeant to do that. I don't want to knock sergeants because they run the army. But uh, I would leave it up to platoon leaders. And we never went out as a company. We went out as a company in the helicopters, but we always broke down in platoons. And I would always stay with the weakest or the most problematical platoon leader. And then I'd visit all the others from time to time, and they would set up many patrol bases with me as a central patrol base. We tried to stay no longer than maybe 48 hours in one particular location. And uh, you were gaining other things by doing that. Guys were becoming uh, hardened. And they're developing their map reading skills and, and, and little techniques you use for being in the jungle and so forth and so on. And then, again, it's the intelligence. You know, we had such imprecise intelligence to go on as to the, uh, the whereabouts of the enemy. I mean, they didn't have the kind of radios we had, so you couldn't monitor their radio signals. And you had to use uh, deer slayer-type techniques, looking for signs of people moving along the trail and... That sort of thing. We would question uh, villagers. We had interpreters with us who uh, would ask. And here's an example of how quickly you can lose your perspective as to uh, compassion. Uh, we had a uh, platoon sergeant, one of my platoons, and we nicknamed him Ben Quick. You ever see the movie? I think it was A Long Hot Summer with, uh, I think Paul Newman was a barn burner. And they called him Ben Quick. And uh, if he didn't like people, for whatever reason, he'd burn down a guy's barn. This guy, we'd go into a village, and uh, if we found any indication at all in any of the huts or anything that the VC had been there, he'd get out a cigarette lighter and up go to the guy's house. And I remember one time the battalion commander jokingly said to me, he said, I can tell you a company's down there because there's a trail of burning huts all the way through the jungle. And we thought it was okay until one day I stopped and asked myself, I said, oh, wait a minute now, we're burning down people's homes. I, I really got to the point where I didn't give a damn. 
I remember one time we showed up at a village and we went into, it was in the monsoon period, we kicked an entire family out of the hood. And I made that my CP until the interpreter told me they were having a religious ceremony. The altar was set up and everything, you know. And something, how quick you can, uh, you can lose that. It was a beautiful country. I've always felt that one day I'd love, I mean, waterfalls way up in the middle of nowhere, you know. And uh, it was just a beautiful country. Sometimes you forget there was a war. We'd find fruit out in the jungle, you know, add that to the sea ration, which was a curse and improvement. And the people were peaceful, you know. And of course, they probably wave at anybody that's trying to be on everybody's side. And it was, I took a camera with me. I kept a camera in my, one of my ammunition pouches. And one guy asked me one day, he said, how the hell could you be a comedy commander and find time to make pictures? I said, I was doing it for posterity. But uh, yes, it was very exhilarating. I remember we had a parade after Marms got his, was nominated for Medal of Honor. And they had a brigade parade. And they put us in our comedy uniform, fixed bayonets. And we marched by and saluted General Kennard. We were all 20 feet tall. We weren't 10 feet tall. We just knew we were hot stuff. Really not much else I can say about that, but yes, it was very exhilarating. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. In 1966, it was a different United States. There was a lot of euphoria about the rightness of our cause. I would have gone home buck naked with nothing on but my CIB. I was so proud of myself. And I remember, I'm from Atlantic City, New Jersey. When I finally, finally got home, they had a big party for me. I was a local hero. Big sign over the door, welcome home, John, blah, 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 blah. Years later, when I went back on my second tour in 1971, when I got home, there was no such uh, reaction. I remember... The negative aspects of the war had begun to filter through to us by virtue of the Stars and Stripes and whatnot. I remember while I was in Vietnam that a group of doctors from the 93rd, I think it was 93rd Evacuation Hospital working out of Saigon, wrote an open letter to the Army leadership or to someone, I don't know who, but it was published in the in the uh, Stars and Stripes about what are we here for? We uh, spend most of our time treating guys that OD on drugs and whatnot and guys that frag people. 
and uh, accidents and so forth and so on. And I, I just heard about it in the scuttlebutt mode around bar talk or whatnot. But I was told that the Army tried to cover it up. I don't know they did. I remember that the 1st Cavalry Division by then only had one brigade left, and they were stationed at Benoit. And there was a talk. It got in the Star of the Strike. There was talk about a platoon leader who went out on an ambush patrol and had some trouble controlling the platoon because there was this, I don't want to be the last guy in Vietnam to get killed, just like the Tides. I was advisor to the Royal Thai Army, and they had one brigade left. And as it became obvious, when the date was announced to the commanders when they would go on, be going back to Bangkok, they all of a sudden stopped being very aggressive in the field. And I remember the American general for that 2nd Regional Assistance Command came down to me and said, I want these damn Tides to make more contact. I said, sir, uh, why don't you come down and tell them, man, I'm working for a tired general, and I don't think I'm in a position as a major to tell them what to do, but you've got two stars, and you can certainly do more than I could. But uh, you could see the differences in morale in the second tour and how it was reflected from the mail I would get from home or whatnot and what was going on in the United States, uh, the pathology of all the stuff with Kennedy and uh, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy and so forth and so on. And uh, the Watts riot and George Wallace running for president, and then the racial thing had entered into the Vietnam scenario in a big time. I remember when uh, my first tour was there, we know the Army has a large preponderance, overly so, maybe, what, 10% more than it's reflected in the population at the time. And uh, I can't recall of any race problem. I don't think I had blinders on. I certainly would have picked up on it. And as I've told people, we used to come back from the field my first tour, and literally the companies would be fighting each other, getting into fist fights over who killed the most VC. That's how high the morale was. By the time we had our second, had my second tour, there were black soldiers separating themselves, having a meeting, giving a black power salute. Uh, there were race relations officers assigned to most of the major units. I can remember going into a drug treatment center and seeing a helicopter pilot, an officer laying up there, the young kid who had been strung out on drugs, and they certainly couldn't let a guy fly a helicopter. And I said, well, things must be pretty bad when you see an officer involved in that crap because officers are supposed to have a different code altogether. That's why they're called officers. And then it was just a question of when are we going home and getting it over with. I've got a son from Generation X. He was born while I was in Vietnam. And although he, I love him to death and so forth and so on, I know that he's different from me, just like I'm different from my father. Uh, I have a lot of disappointment in these people. That then I may just be a dinosaur to them. I don't know. Especially the black kids, because they look at a guy like me and say I'm a sellout, and this, that, and the other. And I try to tell them all the time. I, when I was teaching high school, they'd say, what's a fool like you doing in Vietnam? I said, man, you don't understand. I said, why do you want to give it to the white boys that don't want you to even be in this country, that hate you because of your color? This is your country as much as it is anybody else's. But it's like I'm talking to that box over there. I, it might be that I come from a generation where you always obey people at authority. I would never think of saying the things to my parents, my son says to me. And I think he loves me in this, that, and the other. I always try to please people in authority. People of my generation did. I used to get trembling feelings, and my throat would lump up, saluting the flag. I tried to put the flag up in my neighborhood a, a couple of years ago. I've been living in Washington, and a couple of neighbors complained about it, you know. 
And I said, it's just a sin to, to love your country. I said, this is a good country. And I've been in the Army 32 years. I've traveled most of the world. And I'm always glad back to get back to this country with its racism and all its faults. I said, you guys don't know. You don't know. I don't know what it is. But if you lose that feeling that you owe something to your country, I think we're in big trouble. I asked my son one day, we were sitting there drinking. I said, do you think there's anything worth dying for? And he had this long pause. He said, well, Dad, I'm not going to make the Army career. Is it you did? I said, yeah. I said, there are things worth dying for. This is my country. I said, when I grew up being black with a kick in the ass, worse than you'll ever have. And yet, I serve with pride in the United States. And I don't think I'm that naive. But like I said, I'm not reaching them. I don't understand their music. I sometimes I don't think they do either. Or some of the other values that they have. You know? I remember I was telling war stories one time. My son, to a friend of mine, a guy wanted me to tell him we were both drinking. Son got up and walked out of the room. You know, when General Moore uh, gave me an autographed copy of They Were Soldiers Once and Young, I said, I like one for my son. And so he wrote in there that your father and I saw a lot of danger together. And my son was embarrassed by it, you know. This crap. I told him what I was doing the day he was, he was born. I was up at Operation White Wing. We were getting ready to go out on operation. And when the Red Cross guy came and told me, uh, Colonel Moore said, give him about 10 minutes to let it sink in. So they cut off the helicopter. And I told him how I sat there and how proud I was to have a son, you know. And uh, my house, one of my hobbies, I built model airplanes and tanks and everything. Every room in my house has got all this stuff all over the place. It drives my son up the wall. He moved in with me because he's trying to go to college on the cheap. He took all my models and everything, put them out of the room and so forth and so on. But then nowadays, it made me getting back to where it used to be. It was not considered very nice to be for your country. You just want to do a good job. Like I said, I came back. and You mean you volunteers for Vietnam? I said, man, I'm a soldier. What the hell am I supposed to do? The whole purpose of being in the Army is I don't want to invent war just so I can go find out what it is to, to orchestrate all the machine guns and the troops maneuver and everything. But that's what I'm in the military for. I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, well, I saw the movie Platoon, and uh, I had, I know what, uh, what's the guy's name that did the film? Uh, yeah, Oliver Stone has a certain kind of agenda with JFK and all the other movies he's made. And I saw that movie, and I said, I was in the same kind of environment. And those things didn't happen, you know, where guys were afraid of their own troops and the sergeant kills another sergeant, raping and pillaging and all that crap, you know. That just wasn't my experience. There were moments when I had to be careful because we always had guys in any group. You're going to have a couple of guys you got to look out for. And uh, the other thing I don't like is this this, this portrayal of a, a Vietnamese veteran as a guy that's susceptible to what's this syndrome, whatever the hell they call it. You know, I had my own problems. I came back. I ended up getting a divorce. I don't want to blame it on Vietnam. But uh, most guys did what... Most guys did is that they came back, put their lives together, went on and raised their families and did their thing, you know. And uh, then there's always a tendency in a lot of movies and even in books to portray officers as bumbling, idiots, uh, fascinated by technology, wasting American lives, and so forth and so on. That also is not true. But then whoever said the fiction had to be the truthful portrayal. And I got told a guy one time that sold a platoon, I said, hey man, those are flickering images on the screen. That's all it is. That's someone else's interpretation of what it's like 
to be in comedy, just like in the movie Full Metal Jacket. I thought it was very well done. Stanley Kubrick's a great director, but, you know, come on. It's like taking Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad and making it into Apocalypse Now. Come on. Renegade, Special Forces, Colonel, way out in the middle. Now, I mean, we just got some tall stories about the Special Forces, but don't you think that's taking it a little bit too far? You know? But it makes for, given the ambivalence most Americans have about the military, it makes for good ticket receipts. You know? And I'm sure they'll eventually come up with something like that about Desert Storm. I remember I saw the movie The Great Santini. Now, that was well done. Because I run into colonels like uh, like uh, Robert uh, Duvall. That was very well done. But like I said, I think it's uh, the kinds of people that write novels and write stories and things. I remember when I was in graduate school, I didn't tell anybody I was an Army officer. I went to the University of Wisconsin. I didn't even get my graduate degree because they had to close down the school. I got I left two week, a week before the guy was killed in the math center explosion. And I was taking Portuguese. I was going to go to Brazil. And I was taking a course in Portuguese literature. And by about the third week, I took a summer course. We each had to stand up and say where we were from. Now, here I am going out with these students. I'm most, I'm, uh, I don't wear a beard. I don't have an afro 10 feet wide. I'm just the average run-of-the-way, run-of-the-mill guy. And I got more money than other students. And then when I finally had to stand up and tell them where I was from, you know, I tried to beg my way out of it. I said, I work for the government. And one thing led to another. And when they found out I worked for the Army, you know these kids, we had these movable chairs with the arms on them. They, I had one entire side of the room to myself. And I asked them, I said, no, I thought I was a good guy. I said, you got to buy your beer all the time. Now you want to institutionalize me. I said, and I suppose people should do that to you because you don't wear bras and you have uh, long hair and don't take baths and walk around barefoot and everything. And we do have people in the military that look at society like that. I remember Robert Gorowski came to Fort Leavenworth and at the Command General Staff College, he gave a guest lecture. And the subject was, why does the Army try to make the reporters their public affairs officers? And he got very heated. And he says, our job is to report the war, warts and all. He said, we're not trying to do a job on the military, but a lot of times you guys tend to be self-serving. We try to get behind that. And the question answer period, it got so agamonious. One guy stood up and said, let me tell you, I'm going over, I'm going to be a battalion commander. If I catch one of you damn guys in my area operation, watch out. It got real quiet, and the colonel was the program had to call it off. And a lot of guys in the class agreed with uh, what he said to Mr. Garoski. But viewed from a certain perspective, Platoon was a good movie, so was Full Metal Jacket, but, you know, it wasn't my experience. I remember when I got back to the States, I saw the thing really turn myself. A first cab guy, the first cab patch on, there were two guys holding down the VC and they were taking the candy and one corner down the nose. I'm sure there are probably colonels and people in authority that uh, condone that sort of thing. And I will say this much that that sort of thing does work. That's one of the. the uh, the things that people don't like to talk about. I had experience in El Salvador as a, an attaché, and I found out one thing, terrorism works like a champ if you want it to. The uh, guerrillas down there didn't take prisoners when I first got to El Salvador, nor did the government. And they said, well, what do you take prisoners for? They're nothing but delinquent terrorists. And uh, look what those VC would do. they go into a village, and they would kill anyone in authority. If the person could have just been a militiaman, you know, or something, they'd kill them. 
Well, as in it pointed out in the movie with uh, Marlon Brando, and he said the hell they would send out teams to provide medical aid, and so the VC would come behind him and cut off anybody's arm that had been inoculated. That doesn't surprise me. We had a program in Vietnam that started after I left called the Phoenix Program. Now, if they were assassinating government officials and all American advisors they could find, wouldn't it make sense that we do the same thing to them? And it was very effective. But the people back here in the States got worried up. Oh, we can't do that. Go off and so on. But those things happen in wars. I suppose everybody that's ever been in one has got things he'd rather not talk about. I don't think so. You can see some guys have had the usual things that happen to people when they get middle age. I've had a five pass. You meet guys you don't recognize them. They gain so much weight. They're a shadow of their former selves. General Moore has a hit, has had a hip replacement. He wears a hearing aid. I can't believe that stuff when I look at him. This guy used to outrun anybody. You know, I think a few guys have gotten religion. Some guys don't ever bother to show up. You know, it did a lot of damage to a lot of marriages. You can tell. And we all sit around, at least when I used to go to him, and try to relive the past, and you can't recapture it. I'm 58 years old. When I was in Vietnam, I was 29. I could run up hills like a gazelle, you know, or a goat. You know, I weighed 208, nine pounds. In Vietnam, I was 178 pounds. You know, and all the rest of us were the same way. You look at the pictures then, and look at the guys now, we're portly middle-aged men. They don't really fit in anymore. I remember we started seeing Gary Owen at one reunion, and somebody from a party next door came in and said, why don't you people pipe down? Almost caused a riot. That was Colonel John Anthony Cash. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.